0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: From the Apostrophe
0: Podcast Network. Hello, everybody. You're surviving life with Les Stroud. In the world of radio, and now podcast personalities, it more often than not comes down to whether or not you like the sound of someone's voice to determine if you enjoy listening to their shows and interviews. There are highly intelligent people on air who just grate at you with their particular style or the timbre of their voice. Who knows, maybe I'm one of those. Not with the intelligence, but okay, never mind. But all is right in the listening world when an intuitive intellect is matched with a soothing and enjoyable voice you just don't want to turn off. When it comes to listening to women on the radio, or as I mentioned now online, three female voices have captivated me for years. Anna Maria Tremonti. And yeah, I think the poetry of just saying her name is part of the deal there. Anna Maria Tremonti. Then there's the beautiful Jill Deacon, whom I had the chance to meet just once in the hallways of CBC Canada. And finally, Laurie Brown. Yeah, of course they're Canadians. I'm sure there are some soothing voices to listen to somewhere in the United States. I just haven't found them yet. I'm open to suggestions. As you will hear, Laurie Brown was always much more than the average music interviewer to me. Her soothing voice and graceful demeanor served her agenda well, which, as it turns out, has always been to draw you in and take you deeper down roads You didn't even realize you truly wanted to go, but you did. And then you're grateful to her for forcing your steps in such an easy and comforting way. And just like the only kind of person I'm interested in hanging with for these podcasts, she never quits. She's still producing incredible, thought-provoking content, only now it's all of her own making and control on her podcast perfectly titled PonderCast. Check it out after this podcast of mine. There are Monday's guided meditation followed by Thursday's grounding thoughts. Those titles may sound a little abstract, but they're actually quite on point. To set the stage for you, we met near her home in Toronto before the pandemic and walked to a semi-quiet spot in a park I used to frequent as a preteen, High Park. And yeah, the park's name took on a whole different meaning when I was there as a teenager. But you can hear kids playing and people having a picnic in the background, and for the most part, My Chocolate Lab was well-behaved. These are the words of Laurie Brown.
1: Because artists lead and politicians follow. So if you want to know where things are going, how people are feeling, where the trouble is, where the passion is, where the hope is, follow the artist. Don't follow the politician.
0: All this tugging at your soul Is a dream that won't let go
1: Like, finding that music you loved told you who you were. Jump
0: from the edge if you're ever gonna fly In the snow, in the rain, in the wind, in the
1: sunshine Great artists have a way of seeing the world that they really want other people to see. There. That feels a little better. One two three four five six seven.
0: That sounds that sounds perfect.
1: Okay.
0: The first place I want to go with you is all the way back. So I'm working at Much Music. Yes. And this is before you you came here. Yeah. And I was actually sitting in the room when discussions were had about hiring Denise Donlan. Really. And you 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 were that girl. Did you know who that girl was? You were that girl in the Corey Hart video. <laughs>
1: Uh,
0: yeah <laughs> that's how we first oh oh who is it oh it's that girl that was in the cory hart video yeah you're a broadcaster you're a media person extraordinaire or did you go through high school thinking i want to be i want to interview rock stars or were you looking at being an actress a writer where where were you headed when you were young you
1: know what uh never thought of journalism my career is a, is just a happy accident because really at the very beginnings, I wanted to be an actress and I was singing and I was singing in a band and I thought musical theater and acting was what I wanted to do. And so while I was working in the film department at City TV editing 16 millimeter film to help pay my rent, I was out there and trying to get acting jobs and singing jobs and the band was playing around town. And uh, what was the name of the band? It was called The Crowd in History.
0: The Crowd in History. Yeah,
1: and there were a few people at City TV that were in the band as well. our our thing was taking known songs and doing really warped covers of them. So all kinds of things. We would do show tunes as punk tunes. We'd always change the genre of music from the original to something completely different. So a set of ours, you know, you could have one song be reggae, one song punk, and the next one would sound like country. And then one would sound, you know, very much sort of a a new romantic synth band type thing. Yeah. It was all over the map. Music which I loved. I like to think of it as a sort of a musician's band because musicians would come because they just love to hear how many different kinds of music that we could play. And then I got a call from my agent saying, I don't know what to do about this thing, but there's this thing called a music video. I don't know where they play it, how much money to ask for, but do you want to go for an audition? And I said, sure. And so I went for this audition, and uh, I got it.
0: Is this the new music?
1: Uh, no, this was oh, this the, the sunglasses at oh, night. The car, you know, oh, the the with Rob okay. Portley. You know, champagne pictures. Right,
0: who I was working for?
1: Exactly. Okay. So I went and did this thing. And said, "Okay, we're going to do this. You're going to show up at the Don Jail, and you're going to work overnight, and they're going to give you seven hundred and fifty bucks." And I go, "Okay, that's that's fine. Let's do this." And then that's that's how. You heard about me being, you know, the girl in the video. And meanwhile, I was down in the basement working on the film editing and then then trying to get all these acting jobs. Oh, my. So the whole journalism thing, when um, Daniel Richler said, come on, maybe you'd like to be on the new music, I thought, well, this makes total sense. I know something about being in front of the camera, but I also have a great passion for music, so let's try it. And that's how it happened, like an accident. And it felt so much better than acting. I can't tell you. A, there was no rejection once you get the gig. That's it. You're working. And I hated the idea that someone else could tell me that you're not going to do that role because we don't think you can do it or we don't want you for it. That drove me nuts. Of course, you think I can do this. This is what I'm here for. So that started my career in music journalism.
0: I forgot about the Rob Quartley connection. We do have yeah. a, a, a past of, of connectivity there. So I'd been working for Champagne Motion Pictures for Rob Quartley. Right. And here's how I ended up at Much Music. Uh, <laughs> we played a baseball game. And it was Champagne Pictures against Much Music. And we played the game. And then we went out for beers after. And having a beer with Michael. My, and Mike Hayden. Mike Hayden and Anne Howard. Yes. And I'm having a beer with Michael. And I was working very hard with Rob Courtley. Two weeks later, I was hired and I was, I was at Much Music and it was really almost just very short after that, that I remember you becoming involved there. And it was a little while after that, that Denise Donlan came along when she she did the news thing. Um, And that's what I was curious about because maybe now it's different. Maybe there are kids in high school or college thinking, I want to be a journalist, but that's not what I saw in you. What I saw in you was an artist. Obviously, your work as a musician and your desire to act is you expressing your artistic creativity, and this is what I want to ask you about in terms of your skills in the industry, if you will, of interviewing people. You seem to always approach it like an artist. You weren't like a news person. Uh, you weren't didactic about it. There was a there's a flow in the way you interview and the way you converse with these you're trying to extract their story yeah so was that on purpose did, uh, like how did how did that sort of come out of you to be to be the way you are is it?
1: Well I, I figured that I couldn't go wrong if I trusted my own curiosity if I let that run wild And so I counted on my curiosity and I also counted on the fact that that I was a music fan and I was sitting in a very privileged position, sitting across from an artist that I knew people at home watching on TV, there would be big fans of that artist. And I thought they would give anything to be in my seat right now. And I considered it a big responsibility to try to get the best interview I could out of these people because I had a responsibility to the guy sitting at home in North Bay who loved this band to death and was never gonna get a chance to be where I was. And I had to do it for him and I had to do it right. And I had to do it like I was the biggest fan and knew the most about that band. So I, I kind of took that responsibility very uh, deeply. And it was a big deal.
0: That is actually exactly kind of what I wanted to hear. And I'll, I'll tell you why. You, you'll you remember Ian Thomas. Yes. So a number of years ago, uh, I had the privilege of working with Ian, writing and recording a theme song for my very first documentary film. Right. And I will never forget what Ian said. And I've used this over and over again. And you really just described it as well, that this, this was the natural place that you came from. And that's this. If you create something, a song, a book, a TV show, in your case, it's a 20 minute interview, let's right. say. And let's say you phone it in because you're so damn good at it. Yeah, I'm just going to do the interview. I know what questions to ask. I can roll this off. I've got something else I'm doing later on tonight that I'm thinking about. So what Ian said at one point, and I realized this is, it's kind of heavy, but it works. He said, you know what? We don't have the right to take that 43 minutes out of that person's life to watch your silly film unless you put your whole heart into it. And I've I've never forgotten that, never phoned in a single film that I ever did. And I realized, okay, I'm asking you, can I have 43 minutes of your life, please? Can yes. I have it? It's mm-hmm. mine. I want you to watch my little thing. So there's Laurie Brown. You've just basically kind of described that in the way you approached uh, doing your interviews. You're, yeah. you're, you're giving, because you're, you're, you're taking, you want 20 minutes of me watching the new music. I'm sitting at home watching you for 20 minutes do your thing. And I think that's the way to do it.
1: I think so. Uh, and I feel the same way about the artist I'm sitting across from. They have spent a year or two years of their life creating this album, this piece of work that is everything that they've got at this moment and to not afford them the opportunity to speak deeply about what this project has meant to them and to slough through it in some kind of very cursory way about, ooh, how'd you choose your producer for this? Like, who cares, you know? Like, you can always go deeper with an artist I mean, sometimes maybe they won't follow you there, but you know anybody that's put in a year or two of their life into one project has a lot to say about that, Mm -hmm. if given the right opportunity.
0: What made an interview tough for you? When interviews were were difficult, what made them difficult?
1: For me, if it, it was I really couldn't find a way into the music. If I really was listening to something and it just, it didn't spark anything in me. But the new music found a way to, you could call it a crutch. Um, But what I would do is I would say, I would put this piece of music in the world and say, what does this say about the world at this moment? How does this music give me a chance to talk about something that's going on in the world because I can find it in this music? So maybe I would be talking to somebody about their music, but really we'd be having a conversation about apartheid in South Africa, or maybe we'd be talking about a woman and her difficulty in trying to get on a a tour because she's a woman. So I'd always find something in the real world to bring into the music. And that's kind of interesting too, I think, for the audience, because even if they're not into the music, they can be into the discussion about something real that's going on. So that's something I would do.
0: Forgive me for sounding almost cynical, but you were never caught up with, oh my gosh, I'm talking to Sting today. That never would oh, throw yeah. you off.
1: Like the Star Power did. Did it throw and you off once it, Yeah, and it would throw me off too because a lot of the people I would be sitting across from had done way more interviews than I would ever do. Mm-hmm. And so they had a kind of a way of doing an interview that protected them gave away something that they wanted to give, but also they could walk away without feeling that they they'd crossed a line or something. Crossed a line or that they felt abused in some way. Like a lot of them are damaged goods because they've been through so many bad interviews that they don't want to open up. So those were hard because you had to find a way, you had to find that trigger to get in to let them know, okay, it's not going to be one of those interviews. I've really been listening and I really want to know what's really going on. And to know that there was someone sitting across from them that was truly listening. And that is something I found hard t- to learn how to do. It's just shut up with my own ideas about what should be going on in this interview. Listen to what this person is saying, trust your curiosity. And then when they say something that triggers a question, ask it. Right. You know,
0: not it's looking kind of, at your list,
1: not looking at the list. It's like, it's a conversation.
0: Right. So, you, which, by the way, you've just completely thrown off my list now. <laughs> entirely. Hey, I don't see no list here. Uh, well, there's a little <laughs> list in my brain. Uh, but where I want to go with that is in the making of the series Beyond Survival, I went around the world and I survived with traditional earth cultures, some of them on the brink of extinction in terms of the way they live in the jungles and this and that. And I had to embed myself with them each time. And here's what I did. I would meet with them, say, the San Bushmen of the Kalahari. And we're in the desert and I'm sitting down and I'm meeting the elders. It sounds very cliche, but yes, I'm meeting the elders and yes, I took a gift. And then because I had camera people with me for that, I'd say, I would simply say to them, first of all, never mind these camera people, just pretend they're a bunch of flies buzzing around. I'm here to learn of your culture and I want to share in it. And I want you to look me in the eyes. And if you don't believe that it's true, then please send me on my way home. And... That never happened, which was kind of gutsy because I've already spent a hundred grand to get there, and it's going to be a big problem if the sound bushman said, no, leave, we don't like you. So what did you do to endear yourself to an easy artist and a difficult artist when you're across from them? What's your way? And I'm I'm not suggesting that you're manipulative or that you've got a format, but what, what way would you, how would you endear yourself?
1: I wanted them to know right off the top of the interview and the first couple questions that they were talking to someone who had truly listened to their music and had thought deeply about it. And to do that, I had to do research, and I had to listen a lot, and I had to take them seriously. And I interviewed a lot of really fluffy, fluffy pop bands, but I took them seriously because this was their artistic endeavor, and this was their life, and this is what we were doing. So you can set the tone in an interview that way, right off the top, just like you did with that tribe. You made yourself vulnerable. You gave them equal participation in the process by saying they could stop it at any time. And I think in the the same way, I wanted to have an equal partnership in this conversation. And if I started an interview with A deeper question and a probing question, they would say, okay, this is where we're starting. She's not going to just skim the surface, and then I've got to up my game. So it was kind of like the opening shot in a tennis match, right? If it was a really good shot, then they go, okay, look, right, let's pay attention. Because the trick is in an interview, you can't be doing all the work. You've got to get the other person to do the work, right? And I learned that, it took years of me scrambling, lots of time, with really um, experienced old uh, musicians sitting back and crossing their arms in front of me and watching me, like just you know all this energy, just la 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 la, trying to get them in. And uh, you have to, you have to turn it the other way and say, "I have power here. You have power there. Let's meet in the middle and let's do this thing right."
0: I took a compliment once a long time ago from a music manager who saw me interviewed and he said, you know, you have a skill of being interviewed. You, you As the artist, taking you, the interviewer, yeah. and carving you to where I want to go. See, yes. some artists do that. And he yes. said to me, he goes, you know, the best ever in the world was David Bowie. He was amazing. At, yes, he he knew how to do this, how to, how to bring people in. Actually, something I've been doing even just already now for five minutes here with you, is something that I learned from you and Daniel. If you recall a long time ago, because I, I was interested in what, what you guys were doing, and so I actually ended up helping you guys for a story about satanic rock and Christian rock.
1: That's right. I remember? remember that
0: story. Yes. <laughs> and so I'd interviewed some different rockers, and you and Daniel listened to my interviews and gave me feedback. It might have been you. It might have been Daniel. But the, the suggestion was, when somebody's talking, do not go, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm, don't do it. So that's why I've learned to yeah. go quiet while you're talking. Yes. What did you learn from Daniel when you first started? How did he help carve you in, in your own style, or was it he was doing his thing and you were doing your thing?
1: I think he was the one who first suggested that music was the starting point on the interview, but that was no, there was no reason for it to stay with music. He, uh, you know, a very bright guy, very connected to everything that was going on in the world. And he felt and he taught me that music was a springboard to talk about anything. So don't be afraid of the interview going off in other places because that's a successful conversation when it branches into something bigger.
0: What took you out of it? How did you transition from that? Because I've heard you interview all kinds of people now. Yeah. Uh, Where did the transition, when did the transition take place and how?
1: Well, I guess the transition happened in 1990 when I moved from um, the new music and much music over to the journal. The reason I did that is that I wanted to branch out into becoming an arts journalist, which meant I could talk to all kinds of artists, to dancers, to painters, to choreographers, to theater directors, to actors, to filmmakers, to everything. So I wanted to broaden that idea of, artists of every color, shape, and size. And so that's why I went to the CBC.
0: As you're saying this, I'm thinking, it's because she's an artist. Like I said off the top, because you are an artist in what you do. And I, I believe that's true. I believe that, that people who are, who are even simply have this skill of conversation, that's an art form.
1: It's a very great compliment that you pay me when you say that uh, I am an artist. And every time I hear it, there is this critical voice in my head that says, Les is full of shit. Hence, hence
0: the proof that you are an artist, <laughs> <laughs> right?
1: I think that because of the way I started my career, hoping to be an actress and, and do music and sing in a band and then sort of stepping back to interviewing... I felt like for most of my career, I've been a shadow artist, which is someone who is fascinated by the artistic process, intensely curious about how it works and how people do it. And yet there's something inside me that said, I didn't quite have the nerve to just jump off the cliff and go for it myself. It was really nice to have a kind of... safe seat on the other side and be talking to these artists and learning about what it is they were doing. And so for many years, I felt like I was, I was kind of chickening out and be being a shadow artist. And then when I started to hear a few people say, no, what you're doing is it has its own kind of artistry. I thought, okay, thank, thank God.
0: I didn't have to think too hard about which music track to play for this conversation with Laurie. Not so much because of the lyrics, but more because the feel of this song hushed out Lori Brown to me. This is from my debut album of 2000. Yeah, 20 years ago. The song, Clouds. learn to fly watching clouds roll by Just so so much to do I once buried myself like you Eagles learn to fly watching clouds roll by plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're surviving life with Les Stroud. I can talk in public. I couldn't when I was a kid. If there's ever a compliment given to me because of that, I say, oh, it's just a party trick. It's just my part. And there's a, there is a difference between an interviewer that has the skill set and an interviewer like you that applies the skill set in an artistic way. That's my point. There are differences. I, I've always been very fascinated with interviewers. Now we can go into the CBC, for example. I, I kind of lament and miss Zosky. He just kind of was no bullshit in, in a very diplomatic yeah. way, in a funny way. You, if you were being interviewed by him, you couldn't get away with, with crap.
1: No, no, right? no, no.
0: And I miss that. Yeah. I wouldn't suggest that's your style. It's funny, my head keeps going over to Anne Murray because I remember Anne Murray on the other side of the table was apparently always one of the most difficult interviews because she suffers no fools.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't think I... I may have interviewed her very quickly at a Juno's or something. I never had a really big sit-down interview, but she kind of, you know, she kind of looked at interviewers sideways like this and gave them a little bit of the stink eye before they started. It was kind of like,
0: ah, no. Christopher Ward did. He interviewed her, and I remember him in the commercial break looking over at me like... (laughs) <laughs> holy shit let's get me out of this kind of thing she's tough though and, and yeah. you know in many ways I value the Zosky style interviewing and then there's your style which is it's in, it's in, uh, it's engulfing and it's and it's artistic and we're gonna have time here we're gonna have time and we're gonna ask a question that oh I never thought to ask, ask that question that's what I saw, I saw a lot with you you yeah. ask questions that I didn't think to ask and then I didn't realize that was something I wanted to know
1: Well, I remember when uh, you were on my podcast, PonderCast, and we talked about sound and silence and and the meaning of sound for you when you were so isolated and so by yourself, and all of a sudden, all this stuff came pouring out of you that I had never heard you say before— and it was, so, it was very gratifying to me to go, uh-huh, I knew it. I knew it that Les couldn't be in the silence, out in the wild, without hearing sound as music, without sound becoming a whole world for him. That's cool. Yeah. Like, that is cool. No,
0: it's very cool. It, I, I'm a big proponent of, of not dumbing it down for people. I don't think you ever dumbed it down. Whereas someone like Ozowski are like kind of hard hitters, there are also interviews that you just like, I can't get that 14 minutes back. Like, that, what a waste of time that was. You know, fluffy. I love the fact that you did not ever dumb it down for the audience. Like, oh, so, like you said, what's it like working with uh, Nile Rodgers? Uh, we can all ask that question. And you know what he's going to say. They're going to say, oh, Nile's the best man. He's just fantastic. He changed our sound. Uh, you know, and you go deep, like you said.
1: Well, because there's nothing worse than being in an interview where the interviewer is bored. Like, where where are you gonna go from there? You can't, like that's the role, is to find a way to be completely engaged with the person sitting next to you.
0: What changed in what you started to experience as an interviewer?
1: I think what I noticed was that great artists have a way of seeing the world that they really want other people to see and to know about. And it's a way that they look at things and the way that they see things that they think this perspective needs to be shared. A lot of artists can't really talk about it very well, particularly when you've got painters and visual artists. And to do an interview is very difficult for them. And it's like I took my role to be, I need to help this person find a way to translate their vision of the world that they put into their art into words. And that's hard. It's hard for a lot of people to talk about the art that they do. And so I need to be their, I need to be their helper. I mean, that is my job, is to help them get their vision of their art across. So I I felt like a co-conspirator in these interviews. And that was my job, is to help them find the words and to help shift the conversation around so that they could they could show their work in the in a true light. Mm-hmm. And that was my goal on an interview is to get to that point where they were saying things that they really they really it was heartfelt and true about what they were doing.
0: Can I take a left turn here? Yep. What's the first protest song you remember in your life? Oh.
1: Uh, in my life protest song.
0: Where you recognize this is saying something about something that I should care about, or at least the singer thinks I should care about?
1: I think it was probably John Prine or early early Bruce Coburn, uh, John Prine, Phil Oaks. I can't remember the first song, but I remember there being moments or, that were like, this is about a big thing that's happening in the world, and it had a story to it. And those are it's the, not a love song. No, it's not a love song. It's about a really serious thing that's happening in the world that's wrong.
0: So the reason why I asked this question is I was recently listening to an interview with David Byrne, Talking Heads, and uh, Malcolm Gladwell? Yes. Yeah, yeah, and and Rick Rubin was in the room. You can imagine those three heads, uh, uh, you know, talking about stuff. And they were talking about protest songs because David Byrne had come up with a list of his uh, top 50 protest songs or something. But the reason why that particular subject matter fascinated me is because of my own work as an artist and my own desire to not just write fluffy love songs, songs that say something. So the question is, in your capacity of interviewing all these various artists, what have you seen about that in terms of artists feeling that they're responsible for a voice or a message? Mm -hmm. Have you felt that much?
1: When I was at uh, the New Music and then early days in the journal there were a lot of musicians that were stepping forward into the role as spokespeople for different causes at that time, and they were taking it on. And some did it quite naturally and others didn't. And I remember interviewing The the Hip when they were talking, I think it was about, was it Claquette Sound or or something like that? And they were trying on the language for the first time in an interview, and they were... They were trying to speak about it, and it felt slightly foreign because it was an add-on to their music. It At that point, it wasn't really in the music so much. It was added on top, and they had great intentions like a lot of artists do. I want to use my platform and the fact that people want to talk to me to talk about this important thing it doesn't really work that way. It has to come from a personal experience and a passion and and music that, that comes from there. That's when it works, like when you have a Midnight Oil talking about the situation with Aboriginals in in, uh, Australia, and when you have South African bands talking about apartheid and it's their life and what they're in the middle of. Those protest songs make all the difference in the world because you hear the passion and the anger and the frustration and the sadness and the grief and everything in the song because what is a song supposed to do except make us feel? That to me is when artists do protest music properly is when they put their emotion and their frustration and everything into the song and it's in the music, not layered on top, but in the music. I mean,
0: God forbid it be contrived. Yeah. Right. I think in the case of the hip that you're expressing there, I I mean, one could imagine that any angle like that was probably... Predominantly led by by Gord Downey himself, uh, rather than say "quote unquote" the band. Yeah, and that's perhaps what was going on there was you know hey we got to talk about this guy sort of thing and I can I can kind of hear that discussion in the rehearsal hall sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, because but look how
1: beautifully they learned to do it later on. I, in their that's career, where I was going. Right? Exactly. Yeah, it they became natural. It out. Yeah, and it was in the music, and they almost didn't even have to talk about it because we were feeling it, thinking it, and we're thinking about it, mm-hmm. and that's what you want.
0: So much is dependent on place and time, I find, you know, when, when an artist is doing something. I mean, I think we know that there are artists that are freakishly brilliant and can't sell a painting, can't sell a book. And you, you bang your head again, like, why isn't this person, they're so good, you know, but a lot of it's just wrapped up in place and time. And, and even that, protest songs and so on, there was a place and time with Phil Oakes and Woody Guthrie and, and Bob Dylan where you know, protest songs made so much sense. Then, it's almost like after Live Aid and We Are the World and all of that, it became like, oh, another rock star lamenting about something, is there, you know? That's the, that's the downside of yep. is it gets, we become cynical about it.
1: Yeah, and yet there's, there's lots of great protest music around now in all kinds of different forms of, uh, in different genres of music, but... It's not in the top ten mm, as No. Much as <laughs> well, <laughs> and,
0: and interestingly enough, uh, we were, uh, I was listening as well and I was discussing with, with uh, Bruce, actually, uh, about, uh, about irony in protest songs, you know, when something's ironic. And uh, the worst-case example is Randy Newman's song, Rednecks. It's a song damning the mentality of, of, of Simpleton, you know, and, uh, you know, don't know my ass from a hole in the ground. But rednecks everywhere took it as their rallying cry, as their anthem. And he stopped doing it in his concert because it's like it just went backwards.
1: What a thing, eh? What a thing. Yeah. It's kind of like born in the USA. Same thing.
0: Exactly. Born in the... And brilliantly written, brilliantly ironic. And then... And that's another thing that's always fascinated me about music is when the mainstream or the soft mainstream, like your dentist's office radio, doesn't quite understand... Is my dog? He's knocking it over, isn't he? I
1: got it now. I think. Oh
0: brother! Yes, for the. For the I'm not even going to edit that out. That is my chocolate lab uh, tackling with Lori's my mic, mic cable. Hopefully, he's not chewing it.
1: <laughs> what is
0: he? No, he's eating clover.
1: Eating clover. Oh, oh yeah. Uh,
0: where was I? Before my chocolate lab, so br- rudely uh, interrupted. Uh, I, the irony, in and born USA, is still used to this day by political figures, yeah. thinking, hey. Because they just don't listen. And then you go into your dentist's office and you listen to Take a Walk on the Wild Side. And no grandmother in there knows that he said, but she never lost her head even when she was given head. And nobody has a clue. Yeah, I just crack up. There are so many songs like that that skip by really quickly. Well,
1: you know, and we all know this. There are, we, we know people who are music fans who listen very carefully. And there are other people who um, music is always a background thing. They're never going to afford it, their full attention. Music is one of those things. You get more out the more you put in. And if you don't put in very much to music, you don't get out very much. Do you miss vinyl? Um, No. Let me me rephrase the question. Do you
0: miss the experience of vinyl?
1: I do miss the experience of vinyl. I miss those 23 minutes of sitting on the couch just staring at the back cover of the uh, album while I listened so intently to every song.
0: So here's what I did. I I did the foolish thing in the '80s. I got I sold off all my albums because it was it was a CD. We were getting free CDs at Much Music, right? So I got rid of them all. Stupid, stupid. So a few years ago, I got back into it. I've I've been getting a great collection of even scratch stuff, old used stuff. And here's what happened: the first time I put one on, I put on Peter Gabriel. So I put it on, and I was going to decorate the tree. It's Christmas time, and I was gripped with this you put on an album, you need to sit down and listen to it. It was like this weird <laughs> psychic thing from the past. And I sat down and I listened to side one and then side two of so Peter Gabriel because I was compelled to do so.
1: Yeah.
0: Wax a little bit on where things have gone musically.
1: There is a very physical attachment to vinyl. You physically have a lot of work to do to make the thing play.
0: It's, it's been called a contract almost. Yes, opening it up. I get yeah. that.
1: Yeah. And so you're, you got to be there. You can't walk away. It's not going to turn off on its own. It's just going to go kick, kick, <laughs> kick, kick, kick at the end. And so there is this physicality to vinyl that is incredibly important. Bowie had a great Oh, his ability to see into the future of where the music business and how we were going to listen to music um, in the future, was so, he was so brilliant. He said many, many years before this actually happened, he said, music is going to become like water. Wherever you are, there's going to be a tap and you just turn it on and music comes out or you turn it off. And that's exactly what it has become. It has become something that is so available to everyone. There are great things about that. We no longer live under the tyranny of the top 10 and radio because we have the whole recorded history of music available to us at any time. Like my son grew up, able to access all these old jazz and blues albums. He wasn't listening to the radio. He was on the internet and he was finding all these guitar players and old jazz singers that he loved. That never would have happened before. That is brilliant. The other thing is there's so much of it there, it almost becomes overwhelming. Mm. The amount that you can listen to really seriously diminishes. We all had that experience of, I've got enough money this weekend to go and buy one record and what's it going to be, Mm -hmm. the contract that you have with this artist that you bring home is that you're really going to listen to it because you're finding your music. And particularly in those days, too, the music we first fell in love with, it revealed to us who we were, like finding that music you loved told you who you were, right? And it gave you a vocabulary to shit that your parents weren't talking about. And it opened up a whole other world that you had no idea even existed. And how other people were thinking and what they were thinking about, it was like it was like reading books, only different.
0: Am I reading between the lines here that that's lost now? Or is it watered yeah, down? because
1: I don't think there's artist loyalty the same way that there was. There's song loyalty now. People get attached to a song. One song. They don't buy albums. They buy songs, if they buy them at all. And so you don't have that kind of artist loyalty. And even though the artist is still creating in the album format, which is amazing that that's really held on, that most musicians, musical artists want, they like that idea of 8 to 10 tracks. It allows them to give an, have an artistic journey that still appeals. And that's the way they want to put out their music. But for people listening, most people do not listen to the artist that way. They listen to singles.
0: I, in fact, we've been with me releasing an album. We've been talking a lot about that and the whole concept that it's singles again. When you were telling the story about you got one song or or, or one out, so mine was once a week. If I took my guitar lesson, my mother would buy me a forty-five. <laughs> Yay! And that's how you end up with you know uh, Elton John, Pinball Wizard. And a, and a hidden track of, of Elton.
1: Oh, we got more dogs. Ah,
0: Musical dogs. And on the other side of, of that, you've got a, a Elton and John Lennon performing live. Wow. You can't get that anywhere else. Yeah, And that, yeah. that happened because of that, that sort of musical contract of, of between my mother and I, that's, that's what I wanted. I wanted a 45, I wanted the single. But really, it was a contract between me and discovering you know Elton John and Led Zeppelin and Neil Young. So now it seems to have gone full circle. It's now it seems to be singles. Yeah. The thing is, those singles led to an album. Yeah. You bought Pinball Wizard, but sooner or later you figured out that you could only get it on Elton John Greatest Hits Volume Two, yes. that, and, and, and you, so you got and the you album. I went there.
1: I, I mean, I watch my kids and I, I watch how they consume music, and it's not the same. Yeah, how is that? How is that? I don't see them falling in love with a single artist the way that I did. I mean, my son plays in a band. Uh, My daughter is sending me tracks that she says, your mom, you're going to love this. She'll do that. But she doesn't do the whole album thing. She really doesn't.
0: I know that with my daughter, I, I would ask her often, oh, what's that you're listening to? And she would say... Oh, I don't know who it is.
1: Ah, uh, I know. Uh, my I know.
0: heart would break for yeah. the artist. Like you love that song and you, well, I don't know. Maybe it's Taylor Swift. Maybe it's, I don't really know. I don't, I don't check. Yeah. And I found myself as a father of, at the time, you know, that she would have been 12 or something like 10 years ago. Just standing there going, how, how, how could you not know? You know, I'm, but as an artist myself, I'm just, again, my heart breaking for those artists. What about this side of the way things are now? So we have all of this access. So in some ways we're actually able to listen to people we never would have heard of before that are fantastic. Yeah. They're brilliant. Yeah. But on the same side of it, we can't support them. You know, we could support, I don't know, Kate Bush, you know, by buying Hounds of, of Love. Hounds of Love, Hounds of yep. Hell. Hounds, hounds of love. love. We could support Kate Bush that way. And sure she would get filthy wretch. Fine, good for her. I didn't care. We bought the album. It was beautiful. The artwork was great. The sound was incredible. We can't support the artists that way anymore. Oh, we can download and they'll get 0.0004 cents. What do you think about that? What do you think about the fact that we can't support artists like we used to? Well,
1: I get get upset about that because um, I, I want the artists that are out there making music to be able to make a living doing it. But the more I talk to people who are navigating these new kind of Spotify worlds... I'm hearing from artists who have figured out how they work for them. And how it makes sense for them. And they don't, they're not really that upset about it. They're saying Spotify tells me, it gives me lots of information. It tells me that I can go to Hanover in Germany. And I know that I can get 150 people in a club in Hanover. I can't do it in, you know, Cologne on a Germany, in German tour. Or I can't do it there. But I know that because I can see where these... These plays are coming from and that artists are able to go to where their fans are they can do things like that artists are learning to develop tribes and that is because of social media they can find the people that are their fans and they can create and this is like a Malcolm Gladwell thing too about how you need to create a core of inner people and that's all it takes for them to be doing your your work for you to say you got to listen to this person you got to listen to that person and i think we're beginning to understand that in this world of limitless content out there on the internet that if we want the things that we love to survive we need to support them. And so, services like Patreon, where you can support the artists, which is what Pondercast does. And it's a slow build, I gotta say. It is a slow build to find the people who are attached to your content and wanna give you three bucks a month, five bucks a month, ten bucks a month, because they want you to keep making it. It creates a new kind of fan, which is like the old kind of fan which is completely committed, and you get close to them. Social media has cut out the middleman. The big bad record company is nowhere to be seen. And artists can directly communicate with the people who like their work now. And that is way more meaningful and has an ability to make lifelong loyal fans out of people. And hopefully get them to crack open their wallet and give them some money so that they can make a living doing what they want to do.
0: What's interesting is you actually, in talking about PonderCast and Patreon, it's like you're realizing without realizing because you're acting like an artist. With PonderCast, you're acting like an artist. You are, you are. there is the Lori Brown fan base. Of course there is. I'm one of them. You have a fan base of people that love to listen to your interviews. I know... The years of the interviewing you've done and you've sat across from some of the most brilliant minds in the world, I think, certainly artistically creative minds in the world. Uh, Why PonderCast?
1: Well, I spent 10 years doing late night radio, which was a blast on CBC radio. And it was all about in some ways it's kind of like interviewing because you take the piece of music and what springs to mind when you listen to that piece of music where does my mind go and then i just talk about it and then it leads into the piece of music and it's very it's a wonderful thing to do and after doing that for 10 years i thought that's enough <laughs> that's enough my next step is to expand those little tiny moments of what I was saying on radio and to be able to go deeper and wider. I want to go deeper and wider. And in the world today, there's fewer and fewer opportunities for anybody to go deep or wide. And I thought, I'm going to make my own opportunity and do that with PonderCast. So that when an idea or a feeling, or an issue, or whatever. Or I meet someone who's really interesting, an artist that I want to introduce to Ponderka, I want to be able to take the time to do it. And now it's flipped. I write what I really want to talk about and think about it and what I and what I want other people to think and feel about. And then Joshua Van Tassel writes music to support that. So it's like the other way around now, which is also a, an incredible luxury and a beautiful thing to hear music that's been created specifically for the topic that you're writing about.
0: You explained that to me when we did the interview, but I forgot that part, actually. That, that's right, you are having music composed for the interview. Yeah. I don't know that I've heard that anywhere else. Yeah, and
1: else. May not say, maybe not so much for the interviews, but for when I do um, episodes that are just purely about something. So the ambiance yeah.
0: and all of that. Yeah. So this sounds like a terribly simplistic question, but how are you enjoying it? Is, 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 how's that working out for you? Yeah. you know, is, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I mean, you know, how is it working out for you how, uh, compared to your past?
1: It's like I'm in an off-leash area now. Huh. You know, I don't have any parameters about what I do. There's no length parameters. There's no topic parameters. I move the, through the world and like every one of us every week, maybe you read something and, and there's an idea in there that grabs you and you think about it and then all of a sudden you start to see other little glimpses of that same idea out in the world and you start putting all these ideas together and and the next thing i know i've got 20 minutes of thoughts about this one thing and out it goes into the world so it's really following my curiosity again it's just following your muse yeah your own that's muse. that's what it is
0: with all of the changes that have gone on in media in television and music. What would be your advice to an intelligent audience today to say, here's how you should consume the artwork that's available to us now as compared to, you know, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s? What would be your advice? So I'm an intelligent patron of the arts, but I'm not sure what to turn on anymore. What would be your advice to someone like that?
1: We can get confused and we can the technology can be a turn off. there's no reason to have to use a certain technology if you don't want to. There's always something available to you that you can find on a on a kind of technology that you feel okay with. There's always ways to do that the more attention you give something, the more you will get out of it, which is harder and harder to do these days because we're, you know, this is the age of distraction and that's what we're, what we've got up against us all the time. Finding something that takes you out of that whirlwind, that barrage of a million different things happening at the same time and picking one thing. Just pick one thing and go deep. You will find satisfaction in it. Even if you don't think you do, you will find satisfaction in anything that you give it the full amount of time and attention that, um, that you can.
0: Why art? Why not, why not stick with um, more hardcore journalism, politics, sports, anything? Why art for you?
1: Because artists lead and politicians follow. So if you want to know where things are going, how people are feeling... Where the trouble is, where the passion is, where the hope is, follow the artist. Don't follow the politician.
0: So in your art form and the magic of what you do, Mm -hmm. what do you think, where where do you think is next for you?
1: Next is removing all the technology and standing in front of people and doing it right in front of them. And so we've been doing live PonderCasts in front of an audience and learning how to reach people when they're right in front of me. That is my next step. And it's funny because I think it's kind of a full circle in my whole career. That's the way I started. It's
0: performance art.
1: It's yeah. And I think it's the final thing that maybe will bring together everything that I am interested in and have always wanted to do is the is the live thing. And standing up in front of, of a, a room full of people and talking and making them feel things and engaging people and it's scaring the hell out of me. And that feels so good <laughs> to actually do something that scares you. Um, and that's, that's really the next thing.
0: It, it is a good feeling, isn't yeah, it? it is. Yeah, careful what you wish for, of yeah. course. Um, but that is, okay, bringing, invoking Bowie one more time in this. Uh, he said that, um, you know that feeling when you're walking into the, in the swimming pool and you're in the shallow end, but you're getting closer to the deep end and there's that one moment where your toes are just kind of bobbing off the bottom. Yeah. He goes, that's where I like to stay. Oh
1: yeah, he's, he was so brilliant that way. Always just out of your comfort zone, right? Because that's where all the interesting shit happens in life. It doesn't happen when you're sitting at home on the couch watching TV. It doesn't happen there. And time is fucking short. You know, I find that every time I put myself out there, I am rewarded by an experience and by learning shit. I learned so much. You know, I have friends saying, why are you doing this? You could just just retire now. Like, why are you? This is pretty stressful, Lori. You don't have to do that. And I'm thinking, yeah, but I'm learning so much. And that is such a great place to be.
0: That's, I think, how we stay young, alive, alive. And again, my little fanciful thought that as long as I don't finish, my mind won't let my body quit, which means I'm going to stay alive. (laughs) Obviously, you know that in my world, a lot of things connect down to nature. That's my spiritual connection, if you will. If my motivation is to get people to love nature and to connect with nature, what's yours? What's your your inner motivation that keeps Laurie Brown thinking like an artist and wanting to do stuff?
1: That we have a connection to something much, much bigger than we are. For me, it is this. It is nature. It is the world. When I find myself spiraling out of control in some small little tiny wormhole that's going on that my emotional brain has taken me down, I look at a tree and everything opens up. And it's about opening, and it's about not shutting down your heart, and it's about keeping your heart open, which is very hard to do these days. And if I have a a goal, it's to try and pry people open a little bit and stop them from being so rigid and just try to keep them open. And the more open you get, the calmer you get, the more you realize that you are just this tiny little speck and what's going on is going to be different tomorrow it'll be different the day after you don't have to do anything life is going to change it for you and it's all okay to keep those steel doors open and to have people get a little wider perspective i think that's what i want to do
0: let me ask you the two quick cheesy questions best interview worst interview (sighs)
1: best interview leonard cohen There was someone who was all about attention, and he paid me the ultimate compliment of absolute attention. It was stunning. It was such a gift. Best. Worst. Lou Reed. He never wanted to be interviewed. He never wanted to be interviewed, so he made it completely hard for the interviewer. So I got nothing. Like, I've interviewed him four times, I think, during his life, and I got nothing except for the last time. I thought, screw it. I'm, I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to go out on a limb. He intimidates the hell out of me, but I'm going to go out on the limb. He was singing in a film about Kurt Weil music, and he was singing September Song, which is about getting older. And I thought, oh, I'm going to ask him this, and I'm just going to get crucified. But I said, Lou, how do you feel singing September Song? And there was this pause, and he goes, how do I feel? And I went, oh, don't back out, don't back out, don't back out. I said, yeah, how do you feel? He sneered at me and then he said, I feel like time is running out and I don't have that much time left. And I feel like I've, I, there's so much more to do and I feel like uh, I am so grateful. And he went on this and it got a, I got an answer out of him. And I thought, that's all it took. It took guts. It took me taking a risk, getting out of my comfort zone for him to meet me. He wasn't prepared to, to do the thing where I was kind of slightly intimidated. He wasn't prepared. As soon as I stepped up, he was there.
0: He was waiting for you to be a fluffy interviewer like all the rest, and you caught him off guard. Finally. It was a cross cut.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, cold-cocked him. Yeah, for yeah, the yeah got interview. him. Lou Reed.
0: From, from Leonard Cohen to Lou Reed. I'm just got to... I'm trying to ponder that, actually. Wow. I, I can the, the, the artists that you've interviewed. Most important question.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Have you got time for a glass of wine? Yes. Let's go do that.
1: Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Les.
0: Thank you. <laughs> Lori asked me to join her for a conversation on her PonderCast about six months before the pandemic, and I was thrilled mostly because she didn't want to talk about survival or TV, or film production, she asked if I would come in and talk about silence. It turns out, with the thousands of hours I have spent alone in the wilderness, I apparently had something to say about that. I encourage you to go to her website, pondercast.ca, and have a listen. The sounds of this conversation today have been meditated on by Keith Oman. And we, and when I say we, I mean I, are a member of the Apostrophe Podcast Network, whom I'm sure at this very moment are sitting cross-legged on the floor, doing guided meditation on the numbers 25 or 624, or perhaps they're contemplating just when I'll actually stop talking. Come back and hang with me, folks. We'll figure this life out. Together. Uh, one more thing, or maybe even two. Don't forget my new series, Wild Harvest is airing on a public TV station near you, and that includes the station signal reaching up into Canada. And make sure you hop over to my YouTube channel, Survivorman-Les Stroud, as I am uploading tons of new content every week for you, including Survivorman Archive, Survivorman Bigfoot, and new music. Okay, now, breathe in. And breathe out. (laughs) Breathe in and breathe out breathe in okay I'm going to
1: light head and breathe out ACAST powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend